Hey guys, welcome to episode number 250 of the Pioneering Today podcast. Today is a special episode and it's a little bit different format than I think I've ever had on a podcast before. So oftentimes you'll have solo episodes from me, your host, Melissa K. Norris, the founder of the Pioneering Today Academy, best-selling author of three books, including my newest book, The Family Garden Plan, Grow a Year's Worth of Healthy and Sustainable Food for Your Family. And I oftentimes do have guests on where we do an interview, but today's episode is really a cool episode in a lot of different ways. So it is an episode that is with myself and two others. So it's kind of like a round table. There's three of us. It's myself and it is Jill from Journey with Jill and the Beginner Gardeners podcast and Kevin from the Epic Gardening podcast. And you're, you may have heard this podcast aired on Jill. So if you're a subscriber to Jill's podcast, then you've probably already heard it. But what was fun is Jill reached out to both Kevin and I and said, hey guys, I am having a lot of readers and listeners who are wanting to know what to plant in their gardens or who who are really relying on their gardens this year to provide food for their family in a way that they've never relied on them before or newer gardeners who are coming into this and they're really wanting to know what are the key crops that I need to be planting to really provide for my family this year. So the fun thing is, is Jill facilitated it. So she was kind of the host and Jill and Kevin and I all come from different gardening backgrounds, but we all live in different gardening zones and different gardening climates. So what's really fun and awesome is you get this advice um, and our experiences of growing and providing food for ourselves and or our families from these three different perspectives and different growing climates. So you're going to find a... I. I'm pretty sure that between the three of us, one of our growing climates is going to very closely resemble yours. But what was fun is to hear the different picks because we pick some of our favorite top crops when it comes to being a crop that you would really be relying on and providing both nutrient dense and calorie dense and getting a lot for your family. And all of us actually had different picks and explanations as to why they were. So I think that you're really going to enjoy this episode and all of the information and stuff that's in it. And it's going to really provide you with some great ideas and jumping off points to put things into your own garden. So without further ado, let's just dive into this. Oh, and typically I have got blog posts that accompany all the episodes that is kind of like a written transcript of it. But in order to get this out in a really timely manner to you guys, because we know how much this information is needed, this is one of those more raw podcast episodes where I don't have all of the polished and finished touches that I normally do. And that includes I don't have the full blog post that would normally go up with this. But I hope that you really enjoy it. I do want to get started, first of all, just to give you a little bit of a... uh preparation. This is the first interview I've ever done where my children are in the house and I have threatened them for their life for them to be quiet. But I just have to like, just let you guys know, just in case you hear some big sound or some fighting, I can't promise anything. That's totally fine. I think that's the new norm Mm -hmm. for a lot of people right now. 
Yeah. Well, Alyssa decided she's the nine year old and she decided she was going to go out in my husband's shop and work on a wood project. So maybe she and Drew, who's 13, don't fight. So maybe, maybe we'll be good. (laughs) Fingers crossed, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, I know that with our current situation with the COVID-19, it changes every day. So we are recording this on a Thursday and we're going to be posting it on Tuesday. So that's actually pretty quick turnaround for a podcast, at least in, in the way that I do things. But you never know how things are going to change on a day-to-day basis. But right now, as we're recording this, I just would love for you to tell me what's going on with each of you where you live, because I know it's a little bit different. And Melissa, I want to start with you since you're in Washington State, which has the, I guess, I don't know how you would describe this, but you guys were the first state, I think, to see coronavirus. So I would love to start with you first. Yeah, Washington... As of the last time I checked, which was a few days ago, and like you said, things change so fast. Um, It literally can be day to day, and sometimes it's been hour to hour in a few days, but we have the highest number of confirmed cases last time I looked. And it's we are now on stay at home. So we're recording this on Thursday. That was issued on Monday for us. So non-essential businesses have all been shut down. What is considered essential and what's considered non-essential is, of course, among great debate (laughs) to those (laughs) who live where I am. Um, But you can still go to the grocery store. Um, So grocery stores are still open. Pharmacies are still open. Doctor's offices are still open. Gas stations are still open. Restaurants are, you're not allowed to dine in, but they can do delivery and you can call in and get to go and you can go and get them. And of course, drive-thrus are still open. So just a little bit of context of that stay at home order, but all public schools were actually shut down a couple of weeks ago. So for the first time ever, I am a homeschooling mom and it's actually going pretty well. Uh, my kids are a little bit older, so so that's actually working out pretty well. But my husband's job is considered non-essential. So he is now at home as well, at least for the next kind of two weeks. You know, we don't really know how long this will go. So I work from home, so I'm really fortunate in that aspect. My you know, my work schedule and that hasn't really changed much, but everybody's at home now. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's, we haven't had church and I also teach a local fitness class at a a local um, fitness area. And so we, that of course had to shut down because that's considered non-essential. So those are kind of the only two major things that have really changed for me. And I think the hardest was definitely not being able to go to church um, was kind of odd just on a personal personal note, I really look forward to that Sunday grounding. And it really, um, it's hard to know what day of the week it is now, because they're all kind of the same with everybody there, you know, like your normalcy is a little bit gone. But as far as like, you know, food wise, we've really practiced being self-sufficient for a number of years. So we're, we're pretty well prepared, especially um, in light of a, lo- a lot of people who haven't practiced growing a garden or preserving food or being self-sufficient. So we're, we're doing really well over here. If we're just, you know, I think the hardest thing is not knowing, is it going to get any more stringent? Are things going to get stricter and not having a definite end date in sight? Yeah, I think that's the hardest thing too. Kevin, what about you? How does your situation differ from Melissa's? Yeah, it was really interesting because like you guys, I mean, I work from my house, right? And so being stuck at home is sometimes motivation to get more done. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if I was running around the nursery or out with a friend or something like that, then 
you know, maybe some epic gardening stuff would get put by the wayside. But it is interesting being in an urban setting because I'm about one mile from our downtown center here in San Diego. And I might as well be rural because the streets are completely empty. Uh, they recently just closed the beaches here in San Diego because uh, people were still going. And so they were, they were going, but they were keeping the six feet social distancing. And then there were groups in certain younger beach areas that were disregarding it. And so they said, you know what? We're actually just going to close the beaches completely. And now you can actually get a fine if you're on the beach. And so it really has kind of sunk in here, I think. And it's, it's very, very empty. Uh, like you said, Melissa, all the non-essential services are shut down. But again, especially in California, there's a great debate on, on what those are. So half the nurseries seem to be shut down. Half the nurseries seem to be open. All the restaurants have transitioned to takeout. Even the finer dining places are trying to you know, evolve their model. Uh, I've seen some restaurants selling restaurant bonds where you can buy, let's say, $100 of future credit for $70. And it's just a way to tide over the cash flow for them. So there's some really interesting changes going on just because there's such a high density here. you know. And we're, we're, San Diego is not even that dense of a city. So I can only imagine what would be going on in, let's say, Seattle or, or LA. Yeah. And I think that a lot of my experience is similar to yours, Melissa. The only difference is that we only got our first confirmed case uh, two weeks ago. But when that happened, everything shut down. Like overnight, we had a huge women's conference that was going to take place like two days after that first case. And it was cut, you know, it shut off and all that was canceled immediately. And as of this morning, I think Arkansas has only had 310 confirmed cases. And my county is like one of, I think one to four at the moment confirmed. But so we are kind of behind you guys as far as population wise, but as far as what daily life consists of, it's the same as far as restaurants. Now, we are not under a stay-at-home order yet as of now. So we're still able to go out. But like I said, just like you, you can't dine anywhere. Everything's takeout, go to grocery stores, um, that kind of thing. But I think, Melissa, I'm like you. I I just... And Kevin, you may feel this way too. It it would be nice to know how long this is going to last, you know, just in general of not knowing you know, the, the future. But this is why I thought that this episode with both of you is, would be so helpful for people who are listening because there is so much uncertainty. I mean, my hope is that by the time my harvest comes in a couple of months, my big, my bigger harvest, you know, we'll, we'll be done with that. But I think it's really smart for us to assume that maybe not, you know, because just to be prepared. So I think each of you brings a unique perspective to this conversation of preparedness gardening. And I would love for both of you to share what perspective you bring before we talk about some practical things that we can share with others to help them in their gardens this year. So Kevin, I want you to briefly go over what you did last June and how that experience has impacted the way you look at how to garden, especially in a preparedness situation. Yeah, sure. It's actually really weird that I did this challenge last year, given what's going on now. Uh, so I did something called what I call the Apocalypse Grow Challenge in June of 2019. And the goal there was for me, and again, I'm in an urban setting, my front yard garden is most of my space. It's about 20 by 40 feet, I would say. Um, so I said, you know what, can I, can I make a go of this? Is it possible for me in, in this limited garden to, to survive off of it for a month straight? And so I had some extra rules to help me out. I could only eat what I could grow, fish, 
forage for or barter for at like a fair trade value. Um, and so that was the initial conditions. And it turns out that that completely changes the way that I had to garden. Um, you know, I couldn't grow calorically poor crops or nutritionally poor crops. I switched my entire garden almost exclusively over to potatoes and beans. And then I relied on foraging and fishing to supply the extra stuff. And it just totally changed my perspective to gardening in general. Because prior to that, I just grew what I liked to eat or what I thought was interesting, you know, because food is coming from many different places, the farmer's market, my friends, the grocery store, etc. And, and for that month, it wasn't. So it just totally shifted my perspective. Yeah, and I can, I can definitely see that. And as I followed along with you, I remember you talking a lot about this isn't just about what I want to grow, but it's about what's going to nourish me. And I thought that was very, very fascinating. Melissa, tell me about some of the unique situations that you encounter. You're living in a very rural area, but that in itself, you talk about you can't always depend on the electricity or the water, you know, things like that. So you, you have like firsthand experience with the preparedness in a different way than Kevin does. So can you tell me how that has impacted how you approach preparedness? Yeah, we do live really rurally. And so we'll, we lose power very, very frequently. And when we lose power, because most people where I live were so rural, there is no public water or septic system. So every home has their own private well and their own private septic system. So when the power is out, we didn't have running water. We just since this, like literally within this last six months, uh, got a generator that would be large enough to actually power our well because it, it takes a lot of power to get a, a pump going. So we do now have running water if the power goes out. But prior to that, I'm almost 40. <laughs> I lived, you know, 39 years without having that. And so we had a land mudslide that took out the power and the main highway, this has been a number of years back, probably close to about 10 years ago. Um, but because it was so unstable, they couldn't get in to repair it or to restore our power or even open the road. So for almost two weeks, we didn't have power and our main highway, which would connect us to the, the closest grocery store, was totally impassable. It was shut down. So that really opened my eyes like, okay, you didn't have any warning. It's not like a big storm's coming, you know, power's going to be knocked out, etc. Um, and so we had to rely on, there was a side road that you could take, we could technically get out, um, but we didn't and we could, had what we needed on hand, but it really opened my eyes. And I also have been raised, my dad um, was raised during the Great Depression and that definitely shaped the way that he lived all of his life. And so I grew up, you always have so much food on hand and you always grow so much of this food so that something does happen, you at least have these items to rely on. So that really shaped the way that I thought. But then once I became an adult and we went through that time period and I had children, um, my son was young and I was actually pregnant with my daughter at that time, that you need to make sure that you've got so much on hand <laughs> um, at any given time no matter really what time of the year. Um, and so we rely on our garden and our crops a lot to make sure I've got those staple items, like no matter what. Yeah. And I think that those two situations you both have, have gone through have really prepared you and also are going to help you to be able to share what we're going to be talking about next when it comes to some practical suggestions because as you both are probably experiencing right now, there are a lot of people that are asking questions about gardening and whether they're trying to grow their first garden, which I am 
so excited about that. I know both of you are too, when you hear people that are growing their first gardens or so many people have also talked to me about scaling up their gardens or even being more strategic about what they are planting. And so I wanted to move into a very practical question. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this because I want us to really kind of dive into this. And that is what crops you think are the best to grow in this type of situation. And I want to ask this question. I want each of you to give me three and then I'm going to share, I'll share mine as well. But I also want you to answer the question based on what you would grow. If you could only grow three crops where you live, because I think I have a feeling that our answers will be a little different because we're living in different climates. Each of us is. And explain to me why you chose that. So it's okay if we, we haven't discussed this ahead of time. So we may have the same three crops, but I bet we won't, but there might be some overlap here and that's totally okay. But we may also have different reasons for each one. So I want to break this up a little bit. Let's talk about crop number one. What would be the first crop you'd want to make sure is in your garden this year? And like Kevin, let's start with you. Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to steal one then because I think it's probably one that's pretty common and that would be uh, potatoes. So for me, um, it was so much fun to have to plan out how many potatoes I had to grow to even have a shot at, at making it through the month in, in that limited garden space. And so I grabbed three different varieties. I think it was a Norland, uh, Yukon Gold, and then a Warba. So a red, a yellow, and a white. And tested them all out. Tested them in like five different methods. Turns out that just planting them in the ground a little deeper than normal and, and not really worrying about hilling them up too much seemed to produce the, the biggest yield. So it was kind of interesting. but yeah, just from the only three crops perspective, it's one of the quickest crops you can grow turnaround wise that actually has a decent amount of, of calories. And then of course, you know, you can use potatoes in a million and one different ways in the kitchen. You can dehydrate it and use it in flowers and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's just extremely versatile and extremely fun to grow and actually really not that hard to grow either. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think you got the best yield with planting them in the ground deeper? Well, so I think that that's a good question. I think the hilling thing doesn't seem to hold up. You know, you see those like potato towers that go up like three feet. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't seem like there's a ton of production past maybe 12 to 18 inches or so. And so I tried this out because I was like, I don't know if it's absolutely necessary to hill. And then I was checking out a YouTube video of this guy who was in he was somewhere in the Midwest and he just planted his potatoes 18 inches deep, like really, really deep. And I was like, why did he do that? And then he just let them be. Uh, and he had an insane harvest. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try that too. I don't know the actual like botanical reason why that might be the case, but it certainly seems to be. And even if the yield is the same or even let's say 5 to 10% less, the level of work that's required is so much less that I would probably still do it that way. Let me, I, I'm wondering if there could be a reason for this and I'm, I'm stealing this from a, a gardener here in Arkansas. And she talked about how um, potatoes just really don't like heat. And I've experienced that as well. And so my wondering is maybe since you're in a, a warmer climate like me, maybe that helped insulate it from the heat. I don't know if that's the, tr the truth or not, but it makes sense if, if that could be the case, the lower in the, in the soil would be cooler. Yeah. Yeah. That could be the case for sure. 
So yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting that you tested that and I wish I would have tested that this year, but it was just, it was a lot of work hoeing in my collective mm -hmm. oil. So I didn't this year. Melissa, what about you? What's your crop number one? Well, I have to go back to a standby and that is going to definitely be a bean. I think also because my dad really talked about that was a crop that they could really depend on up here in the Pacific Northwest um, without the aid of, you know, we have like high tunnels and some people do greenhouses and we have so much available to us now to grow and to kind of manipulate our climates for crops that maybe aren't as well suited, like you're just talking about the potatoes. Um, but beans were something even way back when, or if you don't have the the means or the, the items to make a high tunnel of any type of sort, that was very, had a lot of, you know, good calories, amount of protein, could really feed a family, and again, is very versatile. And so when I say beans, I guess I should have specified, I'm, I'm actually talking about a shelled bean. Now, a lot of beans you can let go to maturity, which you would do if you were going to be seed saving, and then you would shell those out, and the inside of, of that would be what you'd use as your dried bean. Um, but we did a, a shelled variety. We call it an October bean, but you could do the same thing with like a cranberry bean, um, any of those shelled varieties that you're drying as a dried bean. Sometimes when they're immature, you can also eat them as a green bean. But that's my, my number one crop because, like I said, you can turn it into so many different things. You can eat it independently. Um, and by using those pole beans, you can actually grow quite a bit in a small amount of space. And you're getting a lot of harvest off of just one plant as compared to something like a beet where beets are awesome, but you're only going to get one beet per seed. Where with beans, you're going to get quite a bit more. So that's my, my number one pick if I could only put one crop in that we would plant. Now, if that were the case, would you use them both as a snap and a shell bean or would you save them all for shelling beans? I would use them both. So as, as things started to come on, I would use, you know, some of the harvest just as our regular like green, green bean for, you know, eating fresh and then also canning. I'm a, I'm a huge canner. So <laughs> would definitely be pressure canning some of them up just as green beans, but I would let the majority of them go as the shelled bean and mature uh, to use as a dried bean because that's really the way you're going to get the most versatility out of it. I mean, you can turn that into, you know, refried beans. You can do, one of our favorite is to do soup beans, where if you just have like a little bit of ham hock or a few little pieces of bacon, so you can really stretch those other items and give it a lot of flavor. Um, you know, soups, just all those. I feel like the versatility, especially as we're in that stay at home, we can go to the grocery store, but honestly here in Washington state right now, when you go to the grocery store, the, their shelves have been empty of certain items. They've literally just been stripped and dried beans have, have been one of those. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been doing a lot of, I've been looking at what I've got on hand and then trying to come up with multiple different meals and all my family is home now. Whereas, you know, this time of year, usually my husband's at work, the kids are at school. And so they're not eating all of their meals from home. We do, my husband takes his lunch most of the time, but the kids kind of go back and forth. So I'm really having to look at what we have on hand and come up with a lot of meals. So not only am I looking at it from a, caloric um, intake part, but also the versatility, like how can I create different things that my family's going to like um, out of these items? I think that's an excellent, excellent one. And, and I will say too, that the dried beans are gone here and the canned vegetables are gone. So that would be, I think beans would be a great one because you, like you said, the versatility, you could do the dried and the canned and that would be some, an easy thing. That's one thing I don't have to worry about because I have canned green beans on the shelf. So it's not even something I have to worry about trying to get from the grocery store. Well, I'm going to round out our first 
uh, crop number one with a different one. And this is one I'd chosen based on my location. And Melissa, I know this probably wouldn't work for yours. You can maybe speak to that. But I would choose sweet potatoes. And the reason I would choose sweet potatoes here is I grew them last year and sweet potatoes love my climate. So I think we do need to take into consideration our climate. I know both of you guys talk about that as well. But another thing is lots of, you know, caloric um, density for sweet potatoes. They keep well. I mean, I've got, I've got more sweet potatoes from my last year's October harvest than I don't know that I don't know that I'm going to eat them all because they, and they, they cure well, they keep well. And in the middle of the season, suppose, well, their greens are edible. We tried them last year, didn't love them, but you know, if, if you had to eat them, you would. And there are lots of, from what I've heard in the past, there are lots of places in the world that sweet potatoes is their main sustenance. So that works well for me in my climate. And I feel like the versatility, like you were saying, Melissa, with the beans is good. And then also kind of piggybacking on Kevin on the potatoes, the storage capacity and just the nutrient in, in caloric density would be a good choice for that. Yeah, I think it's a great choice, Jill. We're just too far north. I can't grow okra, citrus, or sweet potatoes. So I think you made an excellent point is we're all kind of talking about things that will grow really well in our climate without a lot of manipulation. Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of things that would grow way better in your climate too. So yeah. What about crop number two, Melissa? I'm going to let you start off with your second, the second crop you would grow if you could only grow three. So my second crop would actually be tomatoes. And with just a little bit of manipulation, I can grow tomatoes here. I do grow them under a high tunnel just because we're typically so rainy here that we battle with blight if I don't have them under some type of cover. But I picked tomatoes because as I was talking about that versatility, I don't think there's any crop that is more versatile than a tomato when it comes to actually cooking in your kitchen. So I typically can the majority of my tomatoes, and I should say I'm a paste tomato. So not just any tomato, but a paste tomato type. Um, I love a San Marzano Lungo, which is an heirloom tomato, but any of the paste, like an Amish paste aroma uh, would be my pick because they are meaty, they're not watery. So when you're going to make your sauces and to can them up, you don't have to simmer it as long. And I find that they're pretty prolific and I get a lot per plant, which is also high on my kind of my list there. But I can the majority of them up just as plain tomato sauce. And then I can take that sauce, like I never buy condensed tomato soup um, and I can make pizza sauce out of it, spaghetti sauce, you can make ketchup out of it. Um, I use it as condensed tomato soup in different casseroles. I just will mix it with some homemade bone broth and actually just make a quick tomato soup for lunch. So I find that I'm reaching for a jar of that in one form to create it into one form or another at least twice a week, if not more. So that goes as my, my number two pick because of the versatility. I mean, there's definitely some good nutrition in there, not as much as you're going to get from beans, which is why it was number one. Um, that's definitely my number two. I think that's an excellent choice. Kevin, what about you? I would, hmm, I would probably go with maybe something like corn. Corn, it's, it grows pretty well here. I think it could grow a little bit better in other areas, but it grows pretty well here. And it's not too, too hard to grow. And you can use it in a variety of different ways. You can grow different kinds if you want. You could grow the sweet corn or you could grow, if you wanted to, I guess you could go with like a dent corn style and then grind it up and, and use it for flour. I don't have as much experience as 
as certainly you, Melissa, or, or you, Jill, probably on more of the homesteader style approach to things. So I'm this year, I'm kind of getting into more of that preserving the canning and, and saving things for longer and longer. But oftentimes, you know, when something comes out in my garden, I just eat it because there's not a ton of production relative to, I would say, a larger scale garden. But yeah, corn would probably be a good one. I grew a couple raised beds of it last year and had a lot of fun with it. And I went on a tour actually up the California coast and checked out a bunch of different seed companies. And we were kind of trialing all their new varieties. And corn was on the list for many of those people and just grabbing an ear of perfectly ripe and sweet corn and just crunching it right out in the field was so, so, so enjoyable. And just there's just so much you can do with it. Again, it's kind of like it's like the potatoes, it's like the beans, it's like the tomatoes. You, you want a crop that you can do a lot with once you have it. And it, it satisfies at least one of the two of nutrients or, or calories in my view. Kevin, let me ask you a question on that. You said you grew a couple of uh, things of corn in your raised beds last year. Did, did you have enough for proper pollination? Yeah. So I planted it in blocks and I did 16, let's see, no, 32 per bed. Um, so I had a, I had a lot in a, in a small amount of space and I even just in case I did a little bit of hand pollination as well, just to make sure that it was going to, going to properly go. Yeah. Yeah. I grow corn every year. I love growing it, but I have a lot of space to grow it in. And corn is actually a good succession planting crop because it, well, at least in my long season area, this may not be the case with you, Melissa, but Kevin, I know it would be for you. I can, Mm. I usually grow at least two, if not three plantings of corn each year nice. if my season's long enough. So that kind of makes up for the fact that it takes a lot, a lot of space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least in my area it does, but I'm glad to hear that you were able to get good pollination in a small space because I know a lot of people are trying to get these crops in the ground and they are limited on the amount of space. I will share my crop number two, and this may come as kind of a strange thing, but it's something that I'm encouraging people locally right now to do at this time of year in my area, and that is lettuce because it's a quick growing crop. I think a lot of the crops that we've talked about, sweet potatoes, um, tomatoes, a lot of those are not going to be harvested for a couple of months, but lettuce is something that you can get in the ground now and have and have something coming up in the next, you know, 30 to 60 days. So even though I can't grow lettuce in the middle of the summer, I think lettuce would be my choice to tell people to grow now. And then if you're in the North, you can grow it a little bit longer than I can here in the South. But that would be, that would be my crop number two would be some kind of quick growing crop that you can eat quicker than waiting for something that's a little bit longer to go. So that's my crop number two. What about crop number three? Let's start with Kevin on this one. We're going to switch up the order here. So what's your okay. number three crop, Kevin? My number three crop, I'm going to go with one that is kind of akin, I guess, to the lettuce where, yes, it, it might not be super calorically dense, but it, it does grow quickly. And I would say just having like a really well-rounded herb garden would be a, a pick for me because let's face it, if we're growing our tomatoes and our beans and our and our onions and our you know sweet potatoes it's great and it, it's going to sustain us but i think it would be nice to have some spice blends and some seasonings to go along with it and so i i recently did a video on my youtube channel about nine nine foods i would grow in a um i called it a post apocalyptic world but it was a, maybe that was a little extreme but still something to think about and yeah herbs was was the last pick to round it out because you just want that variety, you know, and, and 
uh, far be it for me to say what else you can do with herbs. I know there's quite a bit of, you know, some medicinal things that you can do, but for me, I'm, it's not my expertise. I just kind of focus on how I can use it in the kitchen. And so that would be, that would be a strong pick for me, more of like a little family of plants than, than a single crop. I love that because you're right. I mean, we're talking about things that we need to eat in general, like what, what vegetables will give you the most, but how many of us really want to eat a plain potato, right? You want it with some thyme and some other, uh, other herbs that you're roasting it with. So I think that's an excellent choice. And I think um, Melissa would probably agree, but Melissa, what is your crop number three to round us out? Well, I had to go with, I actually had to think about crop number three, because it's really hard. Like the first two came really easy, but I'm like, okay, if I really have to narrow it down. And again, I went for an item that I'm cooking with all the time and using all the time, and that's onions. So a good storage onion, because unlike you guys, like some of my cool weather crops, like lettuce and spinach and radishes, I can grow longer than you can, but my summer growing period is pretty short. I can only get one crop of corn and there would be no way I could do succession planting with that. But I use onions all the time. And so I like to do, um, I did a, a copra is a great variety because it's got the yellow onions are going to store a lot longer. Now I love red onions and white onions and sweet onions, but if you're looking to store them and to feed you for a long time, which is a lot of my growing focus, um, a yellow onion is what you're after in a good storage onion. So I have to say onions because I go, I probably use an onion almost daily in some format or another cooking dinner and lunch and sometimes even breakfast. Um, and then onions, you can also use, like we were talking a little bit medicinally, but you can use your onions to make fire cider and to do some other things if you need to do some natural remedies, that type of thing. So onions is definitely my number three. And you mentioned copra. That's the one that you grow. And I would want to point out that you are, you are Northern enough where you'll, you'll be growing long day onions. And Kevin, you probably grow short day like I do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I think, I think the yellow onion that I grow typically is like the Texas super sweet. Maybe do you have one that you, that you grow Kevin? You know, onions is a crop that I've grown less of than probably anything else. Um, and so I don't have a particular one that I really, really prefer. Yeah, I'm still testing onions. Melissa, I saw your onion harvest and I was really jealous. Onions, I had one harvest like that my first year of onions and I thought I had onions down. And then since then, it's been a little bit more difficult. So I think a lot of it depends on the swings and the temperature. This year, I, I'm really focused on fertility and trying to see if that will help. Um, but I think... I think onions, I mean, I have a lot of onions planted this year. So I would have definitely have to agree, agree with you, Melissa. Onions would be a great one to put in because you do. You, a lot of us, we use onions every day in our cooking. Yeah. And if you just add onions a little bit, I feel like to a dish, like you don't have, you could even scale back. Like if you're parsley, cause I'm looking at how many onions do I have left actually from last year's crop until they'll come around again. And you can even get by with, you know, kind of having an onion if you have to, and it's still going to add a lot of flavor. Yes. Yes. Well, okay. So I'm going to round out crop number three here and I'm going to go with squash slash winter squash. And the reason that I'm, I'm saying squash and summer squash is that it's a really quick growing crop again, kind of like the lettuce, but it's something that I can grow in the middle of the summer. It's quick growing and you can get a lot of it. So not only can you eat like daily to where you're sick of it, but Hey, if that's what you have for food, then you're going to be grateful for it. 
adding it to those onions would be great. Um, but also I love to shred my summer squash and freeze it. And then I have that squash or zucchini for zucchini bread. I use, I use them both for, for zucchini bread. You can't tell the difference. The benefit of the yellow squash and the zucchini bread is your children, if they don't like green stuff, they can't see it. So you can <laughs> bread. But I would say summer squash for that reason. And also I can do multiple plantings. And I want to throw in winter squash there. Big caveat. I don't grow winter squash. One time a spaghetti squash grew out of my compost pile. And that's, that's the extent of knowing how to grow winter squash because we just don't typically eat it in our house, which is another thing I think both of you would agree with me. Plant what you eat because you, you want to plant what you eat, enjoy. And we just don't eat a lot of winter squash. However, if your family does eat winter squash, it's got good storage capacity. So you would be able to eat it in the off season in the winter. And it's a perfect, a perfectly good storage crop. So that's how I would round out my third crop. And I have to say, I'm, I'm shocked that we had three different, each of us had three different crops that we had chosen ahead of time. Are you guys surprised about that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually am. (laughs) Yeah. I figured a lot of us would have overlap, but I think it goes right back to what you just said, Jill plant what you eat and what grows well in your climate. And we all kind of have different um, differences, definitely in our climate. Um, But of course, in, you know, families and what we like to eat. So I think it talks well to that advice. Yeah. And maybe to, to know that there's not one size fits all, you know, like do, do take into consideration those factors, like you said, the climate and what you eat and it may our preparedness garden, they're going to look different and that's okay. It can still work for people. For those who are wanting to start their garden for the first time, or they're gardening with preparedness at the forefront of their mind. This is something that, like I said, I've been hearing a lot and I know you guys are too. What are some common mistakes that you're seeing people make that could hinder their efforts? Kevin, I'm going to start with you on this one. Yeah. um, You know, there's so many at the beginning of a me and I'm, I'm probably still making quite a few myself, but I would say, you know, failing to plan and, and I'm not someone who loves planning, to be honest with you. But what I've learned uh, often painfully is that in the world of the garden, you really kind of have to because your mistakes don't express themselves until sometimes the middle or the end of the season. And then you just can't, re- you can't fix it until next year. And so the, the timelines are kind of long, right? Like, Let's say I was skateboarding and I made a mistake. Well, I know that I messed that trick up the instant I did it, right? And in the garden, it takes a long time for some of these mistakes to to come about. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, just proper planning. Like, I think even right now, this week on, on my Instagram, I'm doing a series of like really common classic gardening mistakes. So, you know, starting way too big a garden when you're first starting out oftentimes leads to you, you're burning out and you're learning how to grow. 10 different crops for the very first time. And some, some of them have these really unique growing requirements and you just kind of get overwhelmed and then you, then you don't end up gardening again. You get discouraged, right? Or there's you know, planting too densely or not dense enough. Another one, uh, planting everything at the same time and kind of just starting your seeds once for the season and then just imagining that, okay, well, then now my garden is, is done. Most of us can, can do some kind of succession sowing, right? And so there's a whole basket of mistakes that I think a lot of beginners will make, but uh, the one I'll stick with is probably just failing to properly plan out your space. You know, looking at how the light falls over your space, how much you can realistically grow in that space without kind of getting too big for your britches and, and cramming in a lot of seeds, which I know I've definitely done. Um, so that would be that would be my number one. 
What about you, Melissa? The number one thing I'm seeing right now is people are feeling a little bit of that stress and panic and they're wanting to plant right now and it's too soon. So I think that the biggest mistake is people need to know what their last average frost date is in the spring. And if that crop is a warm weather crop or a cool weather crop, because that's definitely going to affect when you can put it into the ground and when you should be starting the seeds indoors, if at all, because with seeds starting, not all crops should be started indoors. And you can't just like Kevin said, you can't start all of your seeds at the same time. You really need to know what, what that crop is. And I just did an in-depth seed starting video on YouTube on this because I was seeing it come up in so many places. People are panicking and calling nurseries and wanting to get all this stuff. And it's just not the proper time to put it in the ground or to start it indoors. And so if you do that too early, you really are, are you're wasting your time and your effort. And a lot of those plants are going to really struggle or they're just going to die. And you might not have the starts or the seeds, or you might, you know, by then, like Kevin said, that correction time has passed, there really is an ideal window on getting your plants and your seeds planted at the appropriate time for where you live. And it all revolves around that last average frost date for summer gardens for in the springtime. Um, so really understanding when that plant should should be seed started indoors, when it can be sown outside, not based on your gardening zone. I'm seeing a lot of that too. Not your gardening zone, but your last average frost date in the spring. I, I feel like I can't stress that enough right now. I'm seeing that a lot as well. And that was actually the one that I would say also is not planting at the proper time. People that are, they're planting too early, but also in my area, planting too late. Like now is probably a little bit too late to start spinach here, you know? So I think locally it, it, differ, it differs where you're, where you're located. But Kevin, I would like you to speak to this because you're in an area that you don't receive frost, if I'm not mistaken. So how does the timing of planting, is it just less an issue for you or for people that, that live in an area that don't have frost? And how, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So this is actually really weird because, you know, I did not grow up as a gardener, right? And so the concept of the last frost date didn't show up for me until I started gardening. And when I started, I didn't really get it because I don't grow in a place, like you said, that has a frost. Zone 10B, I think the average annual minimum is 45. And I'm pretty sure we may have hit that once or twice this year, but even hitting that sometimes is a little rare, right? And so you're right, we can grow year round. Um, the interesting thing is for us, I can sometimes struggle to grow crops that really do want it to get a little colder. So sometimes I struggle with like your broccolis and your cauliflowers or, you know, there's just a whole basket of things that, that sometimes struggle, but yeah, you, it's a, you have a little more leeway in, in my zone as far as when you start things, you can even, and this is, I call it like the second summer idea. You can even get like two crops of your summer crops out depending on your timing. So if you get your tomatoes in, you put them in quote unquote early, I guess you could say for zone 10B and they'll start really coming on. And then in the midsummer, when perhaps that, that plant starts to trail off a little bit, you can actually just hot swap it out for another one and, and do another round of all of your summer crops. If you want to, you definitely don't have to do that. And it kind of does depend on the variety that you grow, but you can do that. And then you can push your summer crops further into what is a true fall for many people. So you can get tomatoes into October, sometimes even November, they can be finishing off, which is pretty crazy. Um, but you also 
you know, that, that means that you just really have to plan everything out a little bit more. So you have more leeway, but at the same time, if you really want to maximize the bounty of that, this growing zone, you do again, have to, to plan it out pretty, pretty extensively because the succession sowing can get pretty complicated. Yeah, I can speak to that. Uh, succession sowing is such a gift, but it does have to be planned out well. So would you say for people that might live in warmer areas, Kevin, like yours, and maybe a little bit, maybe not as south, do you see a lot of people trying to grow those cool weather crops when it's a challenge? Do you think that's a bigger mistake necessarily than take than, than the warm weather crops too early? Yeah, I, I would say growing stuff that just is going to bolt, you know, so like a lot of people will try to grow. I get a lot of questions for some reason about cilantro here mm-hmm. and it just has a hard time, you know, it just really struggles. And so, you know, avoiding some of those. And, you know, I think a lot of people will also try to grow things because it looks nice out in, let's say, November, December, January. They're just trying to grow tomatoes and stuff like that still. Whereas they'd be better served by switching over to, things that many people with a true frost during that time, you know, there's snow on the ground, can't grow. So like having a lettuce garden and a root crop garden throughout the entire winter time in, in zone 10B is a really good way to do it. Um, you, can just, you can just keep growing and keep growing as long as you're you know, taking care of your soil. So I would say at, at some point, you do have to respect the seasons, right? Just because it looks nice. It, there's still the day length factor. There's still a lot of different things going on. So yeah, I would say not switching over soon enough, it could be a problem. And also, yeah, just trying to grow stuff outside of its, its preferred time. And I think it's, it's so critical for beginning gardeners, because I did not understand this, to realize how our different seasons and climates play a huge role in what we can and can't grow in the timing. And now the way that the internet is, you have the ability to connect with people that are local. I know I'm a member of a Facebook group just for Arkansas gardeners. And so I think if you can connect with people locally, you can get a leg up on some of those nuances that if you're a first time gardener, you may be thinking what in the world, I have no idea what my local conditions are. Connect with some local people, I would suggest and be able to get some of that advice because it's critical when it comes to having a successful garden. Mm -hmm. I wanted to end up with this. when it comes to what we're talking about here, let's be clear, none of us wanted this pandemic, absolutely. And we all want it to be over as quickly as possible. But I think you and I, or both of us, we can agree that there's some good coming out of it, particularly when it comes to gardening, preserving, and all those things that just a month ago, it's almost like it laid at the fringes of society. Like gardening is for those people. (laughs) And all of a sudden you have a lot of interest in this. So I want to know from you guys, from your perspective as garden communicators, podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, what good do you hope and expect will come out of this time, particularly when it comes to gardening preparedness and self-sufficiency? And I want to start with Melissa on this one. Oh, goodness. I actually think a lot. I'm already seeing a lot. One is I see people who have been investing and learning and howing to do this, like they not only are feeling a piece because they, they're like, okay, I have these skills, I'm gonna ramp up production, but they have the knowledge and they've got people reaching out to them that are saying, hey, can you help me? Like, I need to do this. And so it's actually really cool because even though we're, we're feeling isolated and there are, are things depending on where you live on that, um, people 
are really having this big opportunity to help one another and to teach one another. So in one way, I feel like it is bringing society together in kind of a unique way that's really special. I'm seeing a lot of open-handedness, a lot of willing to, like, I've got some extra seed. I will, you know, I'll help you out. Or some people don't have growing space. And so I've been seeing a lot of gardeners who are like, okay, you, my neighbor doesn't have growing space for whatever reason, or some of my family members, I do have extra space. I'm going to plant some extra rows just for the very, just so that I can give it to people so that my elderly neighbor who can't grow, I'm planting extra rows just to act as like a community garden that I can deliver and take and share with people. So it's really awesome to see that aspect. And two is I'm seeing people who've never who maybe have wanted to garden, but it's like that someday thing. Like, well, when I retire or when the kids are gone or when life is like all perfect, <laughs> then I'm going to garden. And they're like, oh no, I'm going to do this now. And so I see a lot of people jumping in where they've been waiting. And so it, it's actually, um, it's kind of, it's kind of like heartwarming. That might sound really weird and sappy to say, but that's really how I feel about it. it it's really awesome because we can't, we don't have a control over this pandemic and but we do have control over what we can do and how we can still help people. And so it's really awesome to see that actually coming out. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Kevin? Yeah. I mean, I would say very similar things, you know, I think um, I've seen a really big increase in, in the younger demographic of people that are wanting to start gardens. And like Melissa said, this is sort of the thing that, you know, triggered that action, which of course, as you said, we don't want it to be that trigger, but given that this is the reality, then you know what can we squeeze that's positive out of it? And I think that um, you know a return to some semblance of self sufficiency. You know, I know in in the world that I travel in over here in San Diego, you know, a lot of people aren't deeply, deeply interested in going all the way. Um, but honestly, I think that's personally, I think that's fine. I think that you know. There's a, a bunch of different people living a bunch of different lifestyles. And if, if everyone adds even 10% of resiliency to the way that they live, uh, and that may not even be gardening, right? That may be, you know, um, getting a side income or, you know, something like that. I think it's causing everyone to reevaluate. And I'm, I'm really interested and, and happy to see that the interest has risen the way that it for all of us, really. I mean, I think we're all experiencing a lot more questions, a lot more you know, visitors and, and all that stuff. And I, I'll say this, I, like you said, Melissa, we're going through as a earth right now, a shared moment where almost everyone at the very least has awareness of it. And at the very most is, you know, sheltered in place as millions and millions of people, right? So it's this, it's this bizarre shared experience that we almost never have in our, in our society anymore. I can't even remember the last time, maybe some, you know, national tragedy, like something like a 9-11 is, is something that comes to mind. But yeah, I mean, I will say that like coming on and I've been doing these Instagram lives here and there and releasing some more videos and just there, there's such a sense of shared community now, which is really interesting. And I'm, I'm really hoping that it persists after this is hopefully done pretty soon. I really can't add a whole lot more to what you two said because I've been thinking the same thing. I've, I've so excited with, for people that, like you said, Melissa, they've been putting off gardening because it's not the right time, but now they do have the time. And so this may be for many people, the door they needed to open for them to learn how to grow their own food and get the joy out of it. And I'm just thinking about, I know Melissa and I, you and I have children, our 
how many children in this country in the world are learning about gardening and will know the skills that they might not have otherwise had. So I think there are so many things that, that positives that can and are coming out of this, out of such a tragic situation. And, and I'm hopeful for it. And I hope that it's something that will stick, you know, that the gardens will be successful and that like me, after the first year I was hooked and my life was never the same. And so I hope that that's the case for many, many people. Anything either of you guys want to follow up to that? Um, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you guys and, you know, just thankful to come on and chat with you guys. And it's, it's fun to do all these, these podcasts and conversations, because like you said, you know, I'm not seeing a whole lot of people these days. So <laughs> it's been fun to be on here. Yeah. Yeah. I, the only thing I would say is to just jump in and do it. I mean, I know we talked a lot about, you know, pitfalls that can happen and gave, tried to give some words of wisdom there, but truthfully, just jump, jump in and start and you will learn as you go. And hopefully we helped you kind of shorten that learning curve a little bit, but just get started. Kevin, do you have any last piece of advice that you would share? I would say follow Melissa and follow Jill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. You get like gold star points. That was super <laughs> sweet. And follow Kevin as well. <laughs> well, I have one final question that I didn't prep you guys for. I don't think it's going to be a hard one, but it'll be a quick one. It's just something that I was thinking of today. In the middle of this, the thing that's helped me stay sane, I know this sounds cliche, but it's been gratitude, things that I do have to be grateful for. So I would love for each of you to tell me one thing that you're grateful for right now, and it could be sappy, it could be, but it could be practical, like something that you're grateful you have in your house. It could be toilet paper, you know, whatever it is. I would love for you to share with me one thing that you're grateful for right now. Kevin? Yeah, you know, I've been talking with family and friends a lot about this because, you know, I have friends that kind of run the whole gamut of, of lifestyles and careers, right? And some of them have been decimated by this and some of them have had no effect. And, you know, here I am over here. I've worked from home most of my life, actually, most of my adult life. And I, I've experienced nothing but positives from this in the sense of, you know, epic gardening, there's more interest you know, which, which translates to many more opportunities and things like that. And so I think I'm just generally grateful for the life that I've ended up in, uh, you know, who, who knew as a skateboarding SoCal kid, you know, in the nineties that I would become like a gardener. I just had no idea that that's the path that would go. And, you know, I'm just grateful that I am in the position that I'm in. And, and now I feel like that responsibility to sort of push it forward as much as I can. Yeah, I totally get that. And I'm right there with you. What about you, Melissa? For me, it is really bringing clarity to the things that matter. I mean, we all say, you know, family matters and it does, you know, like we all, we all have things that are important to us and that we say really matter. But when you're in an event like this, like it really brings home and makes you very aware of what truly does matter. And so much of the things that we may have, you know, been thinking about or striving for before this suddenly they really don't hold quite as big of that position. And so I'm, I'm kind of actually grateful for that. And then also for having, you know, for having the food on the shelf that we did grow last year, like is such a peace of mind. So I guess I couldn't pick two or pick one. I had to pick two there. 
Yeah. Well, I could, I could mention several things such as just extra time with my kids at the age that they are that bonus time, but I'm actually for mine, I'm, I'm going to choose something a little off the wall, but both of you, I think can relate to this. I'm grateful for kombucha because oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> sometimes I get my soda craving and I'm a very strict, like a uh, fountain drink only. So I only get it on occasion. And now that we're not going out very much, I don't get my fountain drink, but to be able to have that craving of carbonation and know that I have an endless supply of kombucha, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> oh, I'm obsessed with kombucha. So I, I feel you on that. I love it. I just checked mine last night. I'm like, Oh, is it ready to bottle? So that's why I was laughing. I'm like, yep. I didn't even think to list it, but you're so right. <laughs> Yeah, my kids and my husband laugh at me because last night I popped open a bottle and it's fizzing and overflowing and I just get this big grin and they're like, you're crazy. And I'm like, I get carbonation when all the Dr. Peppers or whatever are sold out, which I don't drink that. But when all of that's sold out, I can still have carbonated beverages because I'm making it at home. And I just felt really empowered with that. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Kevin and Melissa, for hanging out with me today. It's been so much fun talking with you. And I know that what we've, we've talked about today, I, I know is timely and I know will help so many people who are listening. So I do appreciate you uh, taking your time to chat today. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for facilitating and coming up with this idea, Jill. Yes. I've, I've had a good time and, and I know those who are listening will learn a lot as well. Hey guys, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And it was so much fun getting to just talk with other people and share our experiences as we're all going through this collectively, not just in the United States, but really globally, worldwide. It's all a new thing that we're experiencing. So thank you so much for hanging out with me. I so appreciate you. And I will be back with some new episodes as soon as possible. And if there's any topics or things that you want to hear more about, please do let me know. You can leave it in a review of this episode. So whatever app or however you're listening to this, go ahead and just pop in a review. I always read the review, so I'll see there and you can leave some topic suggestions or you can shoot me an email or message me on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you guys so much. And we'll be chatting soon. Thank you.